Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Andrew Weston. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Mike Luoma. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With... 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed. And and in my never-ending quest to just have more and more awesome co-hosts on the show, dear friends, please welcome to the co-host chair, author of the Vatican Assassins series, the Alibi Jones series, host of the weekly Glow in the Dark radio podcast, where he showcases his own fiction every damn week, Mike Lewis. Dude, I am so delighted to have you in the co-host chair. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. I know, and and you're you're a music director up at the point there in Vermont, so you're a radio dude and everything. This, yeah, we're gonna sound sexy on this one, but <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, what's your what's your libation of choice when you when you kick back and relax? These days, it's Citizen Cider Dirty Mayor, which is a gingered hard cider. Damn, dude, that's. Now I want one of those. I don't care what time of day it is. That sounds great. Uh, well, and they make it right here in Burlington. Ah, uh, so it's a local brew. Very nice. It's a local brew, but it's beginning to be discovered across the country. I just saw Paste recommended it as one of the best hard ciders in the country. Uh, uh, see, if Katie Brisky was here right now, we'd be talking brews forever. But, <laughs> but go ahead and crack one of those bad boys and sit back and relax, Mike, because I, I want to spin you a yarn of our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I do that? Oh, please do. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, you know, anybody that's listened to the show for any length of time will have heard me joke from time to time about how the ultimate goal of any successful writer is to buy an island in Greece. Now, our guest host didn't actually buy a Greek island, but he did move to one, which is still pretty badass. And that was just the midpoint of his epic writerly journey. And before you guys start listening for things like when he first read The Hobbit or when he rolled up his first D&D character... That ain't going to happen. Oh, oh, no, no, no. This, my friends, is a whole different ride altogether. Our guest host was born in Birmingham in the UK and grew up in several towns with names like Bearwood and Edgebaston. Uh, he was reading long before he went to school, but it wasn't swords and sorcery that caught his imagination. It was the stars. He had a burning curiosity about astronomy, and his first book was a simple book of basic astronomy called The Night Sky. Now, shortly after that, there was a telescope under the Christmas tree, and that was it. He was going to be an astronaut. Now, in school, it was physics and astronomy at the top of his report card, but even then, he was already making up stories. In what we'd consider here in the United States the fourth grade, uh, he was already charming the teachers with his speaking animal tales. Now, on top of that, he's mainlining some classic sci-fi television. I'm talking Doctor Who, Fireball XL5, Space Patrol, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, a personal favorite of mine, Lost in Space, and his love of science fiction grew. In fact, he read quite literally every sci-fi book in his local library, and when he was finished there, he branched out into fantasy. 
Now, he's also very athletic. He's rugby, swimming, martial arts, an active body to match his active mind. Which isn't really surprising when you consider six generations of the men in our guest host's family had been in the Royal Navy. It was pretty much assumed that our guest host would carry on the tradition. But life has a way of shifting your priorities. His folks had split up when he was younger, and he wasn't really getting along with his stepfather. Now, the Royal Navy program he wanted to enroll in takes a little time to get into. So when he graduated, he enlisted instead in the Special Forces branch of the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines. Now, he served for nine years of distinguished service, during which he secured an astronomy and physics degree in association with Birmingham University. And when he mustered out, he became a police officer for the Devon and Cornwall Constabulary and, over a seven-year period, secured a criminal law degree through Bedford University. Now, Think about this. There's so much going. These are very demanding professions, affording very little time to actually write. But you know as well as I do that when you're a storyteller, the stories just don't go away. So in the rare moments of creative solitude, he wrote and illustrated a collection of stories exclusively for his children called The Adventures of Willy Whiskers. But he was also constantly coming up with ideas for new stories, which he would then take hasty notes on and develop in his mind. He's, he's stockpiling this backlog of stories for that day, someday, when he'll actually have time to write. Unfortunately, that day came quicker than anyone intended. In 2007, he was seriously injured on duty. So seriously, in fact, that the doctors told him he may never walk again. Now, friends, here's a tip. Never tell a ninth-degree grandmaster in jiu-jitsu and veteran of the Royal Marines that he may never walk again because all he's going to do is prove you wrong. Now, he and his family moved to Greece, hoping that the warmer weather would help in his recovery. And it did. That and a fierce, unrelenting determination to get better. And now that he wasn't constantly saving the world from evil, his wife nudged him towards writing some of those stories he'd been taking notes on all those years. Now, the first novels he developed were for his Guardians series, about a group of super-powered humans who intervene when disaster strikes, kind of like Thunderbirds meets X-Men, which really kind of sounds kind of badass. He got his first book contract in 2012, and in addition to three books in the Guardians series, he wrote an erotic paranormal thriller called Fairy Tale, tale spelled T-A-I-L, See what he did there. Uh, two books in his Cambian Journals series, Rage of Augustus and Kiss of the Succubus, had a short story published in For the Love of the Gods collection titled Heart of the Storm and released a short story standalone called Blood Moon. Then, in 2013, he makes the scene at a reunion dinner party with some of his fellow Royal Marines. Now, at one point during the gathering, the conversation turned to military history, specifically discussing the true fate of the legendary Lost Ninth Legion of Rome. This is where 5,000 dudes marched into the mists of Scotland around 100 AD and were never seen again. It's certainly one of the more intriguing bits of military history. So several months later, our guest host watched the movie Millennium, 
where time travelers visit present day and steal passengers from doomed aircraft with the intention of repopulating a barren world in the future. Now, these two concepts mingled in the creative forge of his imagination and eventually emerged and became his latest novel, The Ninth. Now, it appears in Roman numerals on the cover, so if you're intrigued by the concept, and I don't blame you, uh, look for the IX on bookshelves and ebook retailers. Now, the work caught the attention of Janet and Chris Morris over at Perseid Press. This work was precisely the kind of daring, evocative, and dangerous reading they love to advance in the world. And so the ninth found a home at Perseid Press, and in January of this year was released to the public to rave reviews from Blackgate, Amazing Stories, and more. He's a member of the British Science Fiction Association and the British Fantasy Society, has been an active member of Mensa and assisted NASA in one of their remote research projects. His favorite movie is Forbidden Planet. He owns an authentic Captain Picard uniform, is extremely ticklish, and in his spare time, hunts shadows in the dark with a specially designed net. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the roundtable, Andrew Weston. Andrew, I know your days are packed there in Kos on Greece, you know, teaching martial arts and, and learning Greek dancing, and not to mention all of your other writerly deals. So I'm very, very grateful you were able to make the time for us, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> That's our job, Andrew. We will we will guide you gracefully to the next stage of this process. But before we dive into that, before we before we get into the actual twenty minutes with, I do have a question for you. What entails hunting shadows in the dark, and what is special about this net that you hunt with? Oh, it involves lots of controlled substances and alcohol. <laughs> 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 wandering around in the olive grove next to my house at night, bumping into things and pretending I'm doing something awfully important. <laughs> I gotta remember that. Shh. It's all right. I'm hunting shadows. <laughs> all right, let's dive into this. Then I don't want to bandy about anymore. Let's let's start our 20 minutes with Andrew Weston. I'm gonna go ahead and set the timer, and I have no doubt we'll ignore it. But it's good to have goals. Um. Andrew, I want to lead off with kind of a, a, a squishy, uh, a writerly intent question. Um, a lot of the work that you've done has has been very specifically speculative in nature. Uh, Cambian journals, guardians, you know, whether it's superheroes or or fantasy or or science fiction or a blending of all of them. Uh, I'm curious, what? Why do you pursue speculative stories? Uh, uh, over other types of genres, what's what draws you? What, what's compelling to you about speculative fiction? I, I think each of us, we were a product of our environment, and I grew up in the sixties. And you think uh, I was born in nineteen sixty? I'm older than I sound. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, when you think about it, the space race was on at that time. The TV at the time was saturated with you know some of the programs you mentioned. For, Fortunately, my father was in, into science fiction as well. Um, so I've always had that inclination. Um, you know, my first book, um, you know, The, the Night Sky, uh, based on astronomy. I, I've always thought that way. What I do enjoy um, uh, other forms of literature, but, uh, you know, I just have this natural bent towards speculative fiction. I, I kind of, it's the way my mind works. And, uh, you know, I'm always, always 
you know, thinking of ideas, coming up with with concepts and things that you know along that track. It's it's, it's just natural. Um, you know, good. Are you are you at all drawn towards writing in in other genres, you know, thriller or military history? Yes, I suppose I could. I suppose I could do you know a thriller, but as, as I say, I, I naturally think in another way. You know, to you know, you know I dance a different tune because it's such it, it's such. I think the, the, those genres, fantasy and science fiction, you can do anything you want with them. You can have all the action you want. You can have, um, you know, the, that thriller aspect to it. You can have, um, you know, a little bit of eroticism if you want. It's <laughs> it's it's just so flexible, and you and as long as you, you ground it uh, properly, um, you know, you can take it where you want. You know, that's actually an interesting observation. I hadn't considered that before. But if you look at all of the other genres outside of the speculative field, they really are tend to be very pure. You don't see a lot of mashups going on as much as you do in speculative fiction, where the rules seem to be a lot more open. And as you say, you have a lot more freedom to to make things, multiple things, and weave them together, and it's accepted by the readership. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, without... Starting to plug my, my latest novel, you know, it's a science fiction novel, yes, but it borders on the realms of fantasy. It borders on the realms of of military, um, you know, it's a it's a military action adventure. Uh, you know, it's it, there are all sorts of things combined into it, and you know, and depending on on your mood at the time, you can take it uh, along any road you want. And it, you know, it's a, it, I think it's a wonderful genre, science fiction <laughs> and fantasy. It's you know, the the superb. Well, uh, you're you're preaching to the choir here. We are so Absolutely. in completely agreement with you on that one. Well, I thought it was an interesting observation that sci-fi or, or speculative fiction is more of an umbrella term. You know, then, and then it encompasses all those different genres. That was, that was kind of a boom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very much so. <laughs> but I, I just wondered if, uh, working on, on the latest novel that has more military background to it is, did you feel more comfortable in that realm, Andrew? Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, obviously, um, cause I, I find, um, when I, when I write, I, I like to make sure that I'm accurate. You've got to base whatever you write, um, uh, in an element of truth, because I think if you base it in that element of truth, people can spot that and they accept it more. You know, mm-hmm. they, they immediately relax with it. Whereas if it's too fantastical, it's too far fetched, they, oh, they, you know, some people, oh, I've lost it. No, it's gone. So if you base it in what you know, what you're comfortable with, I think that's reflected in the writing. And like, for example, some of the combat scenes there, you know, I just thought back to, some of the situations I've been in the past, um, you know, and it just boom, it comes easily. It just flows as it were. Well, that that's an interesting observation, actually, because, you know, we, we hear a lot of, you know, write what you know, and that's excellent advice. Yeah. But the, the counter to that is always, but I don't know what a dragon looks like. <laughs> I, I don't know what magic is. I don't know these things. And, and I've, I've heard that hue and cry. But I think what you're saying, Andrew, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that, no, you don't know what a dragon is. That's the speculative bit. But you have to ground your stories in something that is recognizable in order for your audience to have a relation to it. Precisely, precisely. I mean, I mean, even when, uh, for example, uh, you, you refer to the, the latest novel. You know, we're talking about futuristic um, science there. But if you base it in theoretical science, stuff that we're just starting to look at now, because you do get those readers, don't you? They go, oh, I think I'll check this out on the internet, and they do. They go into it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
But and they, they see, oh, yes, we are looking into that type of thing with, with teleportation and quantum packets. Oh, yes, we are starting to look into that with, with that type of round in the military. And so they think, oh, this, this guy's done his homework. And what you've done is you've just took it that stage further, added that speculative element, and ba ba. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, especially for people writing near science fiction or even far science fiction, it, it, it's become difficult these days to stay ahead of the incredible advances that we're making uh, yeah. in technology. So so it, it, I think the challenge for, uh, you know, near science fiction is certainly more so than distant, but even so finding the platform that you you set your foot on as a as a sci-fi writer to spring forward from is it's treacherous ground these days it is it's, and yes you have to be very brave to um step into <laughs> i have a fairly um uh, friendly-ish relationship with Raymond E. Feast. I mean, he was very, very kind to me when I started writing and he allowed me to interview him and so on. And uh, I saw a recent thing where he was afraid, to, you know, people have said to him, why don't you branch into sci-fi? And he was saying, no, no, no. You know, it's uh, people have not only said that it's become a little bit stale in recent years, but, you know, for that reason, oh, you know, it, it's so difficult to capture the right audience because... You know, these elements we're discussing, you know, he, and he's saying, I would steer away from that and stick to what I know. So if someone like him, you know, like a literally <laughs> guy, you know, stays away from it, then, um, you know, treading dangerous waters. That's a good cautionary word term, a cautionary tale for all writers. Tread cautiously as you step forward, but definitely do tread forward. You can't let that paralyze you. Very true. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Andrew Weston after this promotional break. Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audiobooks on iTunes and at audiobooks.com. I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark Radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Andrew Weston. Andrew, let me ask you, uh, uh, a lot of our listeners, well, most of our listeners, are writers of some form or another, and there's always the, the whether it's in epic fantasy or, or military sci-fi or military sci-fantasy, whatever, there, I, I think there's a lot of intimidation when we get to the big battle scenes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, whether whether it's the Battle of the Five Armies in Lord of the Rings or, or an epic space opera battle or, or the, the battle scenes in The Ninth. Uh, uh, and I was wondering if you could give our listeners some tips on how best to write a good, big, well, not big or small, but a, a tactical battle scene so that they can they can they can take that and stuff that in their toolbox. OK, I'll, I'll say something in a simplified way first and then just ask me to elaborate on any aspect you want. OK, sure. Uh, 
So, uh, for example, in the night, there's a huge battle scene that takes place within the confines of the main city, Romain City. Um, when you think of the scope of that battle, you know, it's huge. So you, you, you just can't stick down, you know, bite down on your tongue right in the, in the, in the, and you just start writing it out. <laughs> so what, what I do, what I tend to do, I do write things out on rough paper first. I say, right, now this battle starts there. It ends there. This is what takes place in between. But then I split it down because obviously if you just go from the perspective of one person from the word go, it can become very boring. So you have to then bring in different people's viewpoints from the side of the good, you know, the goodies, the baddies, uh, you know, various uh, characters within your plot. And so I write out, right, these are the main people who are going, or the main entities that are being involved in that battle. What are they doing during the battle? And I write out, Again, another little list. So there we are. Those are the people taking part. That's what they're going to be doing. And then what I do is I start to incorporate separately what they're doing. Once I've done that, once I've made a list, uh, then I start to um, give it a time scale, as it were. So as, you know, for example, protagonist A is against um, hero A, he's doing that. Uh, then... We're going to B, then we're going to C. So I'm not explaining this very well. But basically, I divide it down so that as I start to write, I can then add in, as it were, what's taking place in one part of the city at the same time as another part of the city that evolves into another scene that evolves and uh, progresses on towards that scene from different perspectives that keeps it interesting. Because if you mix it up, again, again it engages the reader, it pulls them in, and uh, hopefully... Hopefully, you know, they can visualize it much better in the mind's eye when they get that fuller picture, uh, you know, instead of just from one viewpoint. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> oh, no, it does. It does. It's like the, you're, you're building a framework or an outline of the battle yeah. itself and then hanging these scenes and, and episodes on it. Yeah. And from the perspective of three or four different characters. So, um, you know, some of, some of those scenes will be played out at the same time. So you make that obvious, you know, for, uh, and, uh, some are, you know, as I say, they progress on uh, through the battle, uh, but and allows you to to evolve uh, what's taking place uh, as I say, in in a, in a much more constructive way. Well, I'm curious. I in a recent conversation I had with a buddy about um, Mad Max Fury Road, I, I was I was criticizing the movie because it was like we had this story, 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 and then we've got eight minutes of these car battles before the story advances. And he pointed out, actually, no, that's not true. In those battles, story is taking place, and characters are making choices. Does the story factor in for you as you're building those those huge battle scenes, Andrew? Um, I've got in mind... Uh the overall aim I want to achieve with it, uh, but at the same time, I'm hoping to develop subplots. Uh, so, yes, uh, th this is another reason why I split it out and divide it down the way I do, is because, you know, through that, you can build your, char uh, your characters, you know, you create that character development. Uh, you can introduce certain aspects about them that will be important later or, or um, you know, relate to things that have already taken place. But, yes... Yeah, I, I, I think that's important because unless you split it down that way um, and, and divide it up, as it were, um, people aren't, you know, you, you can lose, you can lose the reader. It can be, be too much uh, of the same thing at the same time. So these little subplots, these little sub stories, as it were, can, you know, 
lift they, they they can lift it out they can make certain aspects special even if it's in relation to a you know a, a certain characteristic or a relationship um yeah it's it's important i think that the that the various aspects tell their own little story within the main story okay that makes so, sense do you think that um that a, a battle situation can can forge a character like show that character's essential nature more so than other scenes i think i think so because uh, you know uh, uh, life experience is showing you can really find out what a person is made of in the right. hinterback. Um, you know, uh, you know, do they have a spine? Do they not? I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. Even the the bravest men, uh, all women for that matter, um, in the heat of battle, uh, you know, they, they they can show the greatest character. Uh, and nobody, uh, I say anyone who goes into battle and says they're not scared is a liar. I'm sorry, you are scared. It's how you then transfer what you're feeling into actions. You know, you get on, you get the job done. Uh, and I think in a storyline, you, you, oh, goodness me, that is, you know, there's such a melting pot, you know, a forge who, you know, <laughs> you can, you can, you can really create or tear down a character in battle. And, yeah. uh, yeah, uh, the, the, they're fantastic scenes that, you know, it's it, not just in relation to the character, but in relation to the overall part where you can develop, where you can tear down, uh, you know, and really enhance your story. Well, yeah, and, and the stakes in any battle uh, uh, are usually incredibly high, where as writers, we're always trying to keep the keep the stakes as high as possible. And, you know, in battle, it's it's not just life and death, but it's also what are you fighting for? What's at stake if you lose? Exactly. You know, there's, there's layers and layers of that. That's, yeah, that's an incredible opportunity for a writer. Mike, have you ever, in your Vatican Assassin or Alibi Jones series, have you ever breached the, the epic battle scene at all? I have. I mean, I've I've had space battles, and I I hadn't thought it out quite as precisely as Andrew's laid it out here. I'm taking notes. There you um, go. Yep. Yep. Because <laughs> because I you know I I want to this is blowing my mind a little bit. This is great, Andrew. Thank you because I'm I'm picking <laughs> up stuff here. But yeah, I mean, it is a big challenge, and um, but but the readers seem to uh, gravitate to those scenes because when I'm talking to people who are fans of the series, they'll bring up things like, um. Well, I have one reader who just brings up the sound of the lasers that I came up with. Flash! So, I mean, <laughs> it, it's like these scenes also are, are impactful with your readers. So knowing how to approach them a little bit better is, is, is invaluable here. Well, there's a, there's a cinematic quality. I would think to it. I mean, those those epic scenes. I mean, we've all seen you know the Cecil B. DeMille films, all the epic sci-fi and fantasy films that we see. Those those are intense emotional moments, and the the challenge is to translate. You you've got some great coin that you can spend there, uh, but spending it wisely and and fulfilling the reader's expectations of those epic scenes, I would imagine, is the biggest challenge. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I say th there's that saying, isn't it? That the more senses you can engage, then the more a lesson is driven home. Ah, and, yes. Yeah, and so when I am in, engaged in a battle scene, you know, not only do I think back to things that I've done in the past and so on, but then I try to incorporate that into the battle itself. Um, you know, it's not just that I'm, you know, he's squeezing the trigger and bang, 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 like this. What does it sound like? What does it smell like? How is he feeling at the time? What are the sensations? And because there is, when you're involved in battle, it, it's a really, really strange sensation I found. It was almost as if it was, 
uh, what was taking place was in ultra fine slow motion, mm. but at normal speed. It, it's really strange. And certain senses become heightened, while other ones they just narrow down, and, and certain senses are dulled. While oh, it, it, it's an incredible feeling. And if you can put that in the sights, the sounds, the textures, the smells, and and, and of course it engages the reader. And you can almost feel them like reading the book. They're hunching into it. They're being drawn into the battle. And they're living it themselves, and that's what you want. I, I, could, I can literally hear hundreds of listeners right now scribbling notes furiously about that description. It's funny, I've just written a scene, I'm not, I can't say what about, sorry to, to, to butt in there, but I've just written a, a scene about a battle in, shall we say, virtual zero-G um, conditions. And of course, things are very different there. <laughs> and, oh, God. Uh, and uh, oh yes, you know, so you don't hear the tinkling of empty casings, you know, as they as they shower down onto the ground and things. It's kind of like oh yeah, because they go floating off, you know. And uh, oh oh yes, you know, and it's kind of <laughs> oh, that took a lot of research, I tell you. But yes, you've got to engage them. You've got to pull them in and make you know get your reader living it, not just reading about it. They've got to live it. They've got to smell it. They've got to hear it. They've got to feel it. What's going on around them? You know, they've got to get the heart beating, the, the you know, the adrenaline surge. And you know, you do that, you've got them. That's awesome. So very true. I, I've got one last question for you, Andrew, before actually we've already run out of time, but screw it. We're going to carry on. Um, I, I got one last question for you because you recently entered into a very different uh, uh, writerly experience. You're working with Janet and Chris Morris on a Heroes in Hell story, right? Yeah, I I would love to hear now. Now, Jen and Chris have talked extensively about their collaborative process, and it's it's an incredible process. I I would love to get a firsthand impression from you of what the collaborative process was like for you working with them to develop your story. What did, what did you what did you discover about yourself? What what distinguished it from your other writing experiences? Well, the thing about it is, is uh, you don't have as much free reign. You can't take it exactly where you want to go because when you join such an established universe like the Heroes in Hell, mm-hmm. um, they've already got, as it were, their uh, they, you know, this term world building. They've got a very established well, not just a world; it's a universe. So you've got to find out what the rules are. What can you do? What can't you do? How, uh, what can be stretched? What can't be stretched? What's taboo? So you, you've got to really do your homework and find out what's yes, what's no, what are the gray areas? What are you allowed to stretch? What can't you even touch? And once you've got that, you've got to do homework. Once you've done that, then you can start to create your own little world within that to, and, and, to try and develop what I did with my character, um, you'll, you'll find out from Monday in every good bookstore, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, it's coming out. Uh, I'm introducing a character called Grimm, who's uh, basically Satan's hitman. And from that, I, I, I just didn't want to introduce him into this established universe. I wanted him to be able to add to it, to enhance it in some way, you know, so that, oh, yeah, he fits right in, but he brings this with it. You know, so... You've got to do a lot of homework in a nutshell, uh, find out, you know, what's what and, uh, you know, what you can do to make your, your character come alive within that environment and then grow. Simple as that. Did they, did they, was there a lot of back and forth? Uh, uh, did, did they, what was the editorial process like? How, how did you work in that? Um, well, initially, of course, there was a lot of back and forth because I, I asked a lot of questions. Uh, I'm not afraid about asking questions. Uh, because obviously, as I say, when you go into that type of environment, it's something, you know, it, it, it's Janet, uh, Janet's baby, and uh, so you've got to make sure that what you're doing is right, 
And then once you've got your framework, you start to build it and you know you continue asking questions. And yes, it, it was very good. They have a, a certain style, a certain technique that you know I'm still adapting to. Uh, but yeah, it's really really good fun. Um, the editorial process is great because what I found, especially with Janet and Chris, in other publishing ha- uh, houses, uh, you kind of uh, how can I say certain times um, the editors do restrict you. You know, they oh this can be done, that can be blah blah blah. But Janet and Chris allow this free reign where your personality is allowed to reflect much much more. Uh, it, you know, it rings through your particular style of writing. So yeah. Uh, so even though you're conforming to the rules of their universe, it you know it, it, it comes out wonderfully, um, you know, w- within the character development, the plot development, and so on. And yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, de- developing that character, as as hopefully you'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. And and the name of that book uh, uh, and the name of your story in it. The short story uh, within uh, the uh, Doctors in Hell is called Grim. And from that, what we're going to do is overlap each anthology with an actual Hell novel. They've, um, yeah, they like the character so much that uh, I've actually been uh, allowed to write uh, a series of Hell novels involving Grimm. So, <laughs> Dr. Nice. Dr. yeah, yeah, it's superb. And what I'm doing is obviously to involve it more within that universe. Is we have an anthology which leads into a novel uh, in its own right, which leads into another anthology, which then jumps onto the next novel. You know, so it, it you know, it's a uh, leapfrogs and. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Holy crap. And and what, what, what better praise could you get than, yes, we like your character so much, we want you to write a novel of it. That's uh, fabulous. Wow. That's me a fortune, I'll tell you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. All your discretionary cast there in Greece, gone with one bribe. <laughs> well, friends, the, uh, the, the clock has, has brandished several automatic weapons and a grenade and has threatened to throw it at me. So I, I can only assume that this means we're out of time, either that or... or I need to duck and roll. Um, Andrew Weston, uh, this has been awesome. There's There's been some rich writerly goodness going on here. Thank you so much for making the time, sir. Thank you. It's been great fun. Absolutely. Mike, dude, I heard your pencil scribbling in the background there. Mine certainly was too. What, what What's the big takeaway for you from this one? I think the uh, the idea of, of frameworking the battle, the way Andrew was describing it. Yeah. As, as I was saying in the middle of things, uh, that, that to me was like, it, it it codified and made sense out of something I was doing kind of unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's almost like choreography. It, it's it's you know you you're a, you're a dance choreographer and battle is is the deadliest dance of them all. Blah blah blah. I guess I hadn't thought of of, of outlining the battle quite that way and and. And it just made so much sense as I listened to Andrew sure. describe it. So yeah, and like I say, I, I think I heard the, the the pencils scribbling all across the country and around the world as people took those notes. For for me, that that of course really glommed onto me as well. But uh, uh, just that that revolution. See, I'm. I'm finding myself, Mike, getting more and more high-minded and living in this 30,000-foot looking down and trying to recognize the patterns and and qualities of the stories that we're writing. And that revelation about the fact that, you know, other genres that don't fall into that very broad speculative umbrella uh, are, are very pure. You don't see... You know, westerns are westerns. Thrillers are thrillers. You don't see a lot of uh, crossover or mashup over there. Whereas in speculative fiction, it's really, especially in recent years, become much more of this 
frothing mutation playground sandbox <laughs> thing where you can throw down and blend three or four genres effectively and successfully into a single story. And that kind of blows my mind. It is kind of neat to see that writ whole or writ yeah. large. Yeah, exactly. And it's also kind of liberating. It's like, yeah, you know, you can do that, writers. So, <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Well, friends, here's the here's the marvelous thing about the roundtable. That last 20-ish minutes was, was a delight, and I know our heads are swollen with goodness. But here's the deal. In seven days, we're going to bring Andrew back, we're going to bring Michael back, and we're going to introduce into the equation a courageous guest writer. And we're going to throw down with one of the most badass story workshops your ears and brain have ever consumed. So so do come back in seven days and we will delight you with that bit of awesomeness. But I know it's it's seven days. That's a long damn time to wait. Mike, what 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 should our listeners be doing between now and seven days from now to fill that time productively? Well let's see. Right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that's excellent advice. Add your stories to the world, friends. That makes the world a more awesome place. That's your job. I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So so look for the holy crap, I didn't realize that was there. Look for the, oh man, I, I just kind of peed my pants a little bit. Just look for that stuff, and I promise you, if you set your sights on it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.